Hello, welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. I'm John Tomlinson, and today I'm here with Nancy Parsons. Hi, Nancy. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Thank you. Okay, everything okay over there in Texas? Everything's okay. Just stormy. <laughs> stormy. Yeah, well, it's all very lovely here in Madrid at the moment. Spring has really come, so we're all basking in the hot sun for the first time this year, it seems. Nice. Yes, it really is. It really is. We were going to talk about leadership development and how that starts with self-awareness. And that's something that you specialized in quite a lot over the past few years or, or, or more. Yes, yes. For more than two decades, about 23 years. So why self-awareness? Why do you think that's the first building block when it comes to leadership? Well, we know even based on, say, the results of leadership effectiveness, that something's amiss, something's not going right. And what we find is when people are truly self-aware, particularly leaders, they can steer their performance in a much better direction. When they're self-aware, they can really leverage their strengths while keeping their risks in check or their you know, ineffective behaviors. And then they can also move to do the work that they really love and enjoy. So it makes a big difference if somebody really knows themselves well, that they can guide their career and their performance in, in the right direction. You said that, you know, there are problems with leadership at the moment. What kind of evidence do you have for, for that? I'm not necessarily challenging it because from anecdotally, I can totally agree with you, but I just wondered what evidence there was backing that one up. Well, yeah, there's many, many studies for decades, actually. Um, when my business partner, Kim Leverage, who's an IO psychologist, and I started CDR back in 1998, the studies then, the body of work suggested that 50 to 75% of leaders were ineffective. Unfortunately, the studies still show that whether you look at SHRM, you know, the Society for Human Resources or CCL, and there's just a body of evidence showing that leaders are not really effective overall. So running, even if it's even if it's 50%, just think about it this way. If you owned a machine shop and you were making, I don't know, you were making something, but it only worked 50% of the time you would basically go out of business. <laughs> that's not a good business model, right? No, no, that's yep, yep, That's a really poor, yeah. Yeah, yep, we kind of look the other way and we just keep throwing money at it and throwing programs and competencies and coaching, but we're, not, we're still not seeing the results. The ROI on all these efforts is just not there. And I, what we find is because truly, these people are not self-aware. Sometimes we're not getting them until they're in the last quarter of their career and they're finally, their eyes are opening. Oh my goodness, you know, why do we wait until they're like 55 or something like that for them to really start developing in, in uh, very serious ways? So, so that's been our practice. I guess one of the factors in that is, you know, your, your analogy of the machine shop and having a machine that failed 50% of the time. That's very black and white. You know whether a machine is succeeding or failing. It's much less clear with leadership because we don't measure it in such on-off ways. So I guess that might be part of it. Yeah, no, it is. Um, there's obviously there's multiple layers. You're going to look at tangible, intangible, you know, factors when you're looking at leadership effectiveness. You know, we're talking about surveys. We're talking about results. We're talking about lost opportunities, mistakes, etc. Loss of clients. So there's a lot. You're right. There's a lot of different variables that go into that. But largely the studies show that. And let me give you one other thing. This is this is the deal. This, this seals the deal for me. So every time I speak in front of a group or a large group of leaders who usually have about at least 20 years of service or something, I'll say to them, okay, take a moment and count in your head 
the number of exceptional leaders that you've worked with throughout your career. Just think about it and you know, I'll give you a moment or two to think about how many. Invariably, those groups are lucky to come up with one, maybe two, but I would say the average is one. And they've probably worked with 20 or 30 leaders. So what that's saying is leadership is hard. You know, we're all good at our technical spaces and our business spaces, but we're not so good with consistency and leadership. And it's and even leadership itself feels nebulous, dealing with people and the emotions. So it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but I think we can do a far better job at it. I think there's ways we can get at it in short order uh, to make a big difference. Yeah, I, in my head, when you said that, I came up with two. If I was being yeah. generous, when you say exceptional, right. I don't know. I was being generous when I was thinking good leaders. I was, yeah. I, was, I was probably thinking more managers than leaders, but um, I, yeah, I came up with two, probably again, out of about 30. But you do provide, when we're talking about self-awareness, you've got some structure to this. You've got some ways of divvying it up. We're not just trying to talk about self-awareness in, in a kind of nebulous sense. So right, we're going right. to go through three sections here. The first one, we're going to talk about strengths, gifts, talents, and gaps. And then we're going to go on and talk about different types of risks and, the, and, and how they come into leadership. And then lastly, drivers and motivation. So let's right. go to the first one first. Talk us through this idea of strengths, gifts, talents, gaps. What what you mean by that? Yeah, we actually have assessment tools that measure that uh, an individual or leader's strengths to a very deep level, and um, and these tools are validated for actually for selection too. But we use them primarily for development. But there's some key areas. For example, there's seven what we call seven primary scales, and one of them to know whether somebody should be in a leadership job or not is leadership energy. So there's a measure from zero to 100%, and then there's some subfacets or subscales under that. Well, even to be considered for a leadership job, somebody should have at least a mid-range, which would be a 35 or above, and 35 is fairly low, right? But we wanna see that, and then we'd look at the subscales to see how it fits. You would, you'd be shocked to know how many people are in leadership jobs who might only have 10% in this. But it's because maybe they have a PhD or an MBA or such and such, but they're really not well suited by way of their natural grain to serve in a leadership role. So, so we measure that. We measure uh, how. Sorry. So, just a question: What is that leadership energy? I'm not. I'm not yeah. quite sure what that is because when you say energy, you naturally think about the more extroverted personality, which isn't necessarily relevant for leadership. Now, we also measure sociability, which is the extroversion, introversion. This measures how decisive one is, how confident as a leader, how competitive one is, you know, whether they're uh, strategic about their career and whether they have confidence in, in talking in front of others. So it is a confidence factor, but it's not how well they speak, but am I comfortable or do I freeze right. kind of thing. So that goes into leadership energy. So what we want, so here's the thing though, people with higher scores in leadership energy usually enjoy managing people, projects, budgets, whatever. They like taking charge. They have what we call surgency. They like to push things forward. They're what you might refer to sometimes as your natural leaders. They were the ones always trying to run things, always trying to be in charge. They're the bossy people, you know? Right. So, so anyway, so that's like the first hurdle. Now there's other hurdles. That in and of itself does not make a person a good leader. It just means you have a pulse, right? That you may right. have that's the first hurdle, but there's several others. We measure something that's really important called adjustment or one's temperament. And this is like how calm and relaxed and confident one is on the high side, laid back, you know, self-assured versus somebody who's vigilant, uh, keyed up, hard on themselves, maybe not as resilient to stress. Now, 
But the interesting thing on that, the funny thing with that one, and you might, and leaders have a range from low to high scores on that, right? And so do people do in general. Now, there's some positives, obviously, if you have a high score, because you're confident, you can handle tough situations, you know, going into COVID, you're, nice, you're calmer. The bad news is they tend to have an overdeveloped sense of self. They're not good at listening to feedback because they think they've arrived. They think they're pretty darn good, right? I know a few of those, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then, but then on the lower side, yeah, they don't, may, they're maybe not as resilient to stress, but they push themselves and others really hard. So those people with like somewhat low scores, maybe in the 30s, are often your best performers because they have what we call burn in the belly or the other word that's used popularly is grit. They have grit in their tummy. So for example, if you were hiring or, or developing salespeople, we want them to have a, a score lower than 70 in adjustment because we don't want them lay back. You know, We don't want them to come in and kick their feet up on the desk. No, we want them out there fired up to, to get new clients, right? So that burn in the belly is really important. So that's just a gauge of how people, now the lower scores though, sometimes they might have temper issues and other things. So it's kind of a mixed bag. That's where with ours, for example, those sub traits or sub scales are so important because they, they give these nuances about a person uh, to really help them manage themselves better, right? So back to leadership energy, I'll just give you one quick example. One, one of the sub scales is particularly powerful called career focus. So if somebody has a high score in this, they know what they want to be. They just go out on their career. They're ready to go. I want to be this. I want to be an engineer. Then I want to manage the group or whatever. But many people have low career focus. And these are the people who struggle with, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. So, and, but this stays with them you know, throughout their lives. So we help them really understand their strengths and then their drivers, what they love. So if they stay focused on those things, they'll be fine but they'll always have a little nagging doubt in their head. Is this right for me? And we find like in, in the US, for example, we work with transitioning veterans, 55% of them in our study have a low score in career focus. So they go into the military because they don't know what they want to do, right? They're trying to find themselves, but they come out of the military, they don't know what they want to do. <laughs> so, so we try to help find them. themselves. Anyway, yeah, so there's some really cool little nuggets, if you, what I would call nuggets of information to help people get on the right track. And our, our thing is, we really wanna help people find their true gifts, their true talent, and go with that. And, um, and not try to be something they're really not cut out to do because then they'll be miserable, they won't do as well, and you know, they'll, be, they'll be stressed. Life is difficult when you're in a job that you don't fit very well you know, or on a path. So you're talking about kind of like an array of different psychometrics, which are looking at different aspects of... Right, and then we have five others, yeah, that we look at. Uh, different aspects of, of leadership, is that right? Is that uh, the structure? Strength, yes, strength. Like, we, as you mentioned earlier, how, how one communicates. Are they extroverted, good at telling stories? And are they, in our sociability, we look at, are you, you know, ex are you an exhibitionist and are you entertaining? And often we find many leaders are exhibitionists, so they like to talk, they like to put forth, but they're not entertaining, so they're boring, right? When they talk, they're like dull. It's like watching paint dry, right? So, <laughs> so, and we don't try to teach them to tell stories. We try to teach them to be effective where they're coming from. So, okay, make sure your, your presentations are short to the point or partner with somebody else who's a better storyteller when you present. But you can't, the other thing that you might, you might find funny is since the beginning, Kim and I used the tagline, you can't teach fish to fly. 
we don't teach fish to fly. We help people find where they shine and go with that. And we're very clear about being honest with people when they don't have leadership capability. Uh, years ago, uh, many years ago, it was 2004 actually, I was interviewed by uh, Jared Sandberg, who at that time was with the Wall Street Journal. And he took our assessments and had coaching, right? So he took two other companies' assessments too and had coaching with them. And one was a very large company, you would know, a billion dollar company. And I won't name the name just, just to not do that. But anyway, both of those companies said that he had leadership potential and capability. It just needed to be developed. Well, in the article he shared, he only had six percentile leadership energy. And I told him, don't even think about a leadership job. You're in the right role as an investigative reporter. You're doing, you know, he's a brilliant guy. But in the article, he was funny. He said, my dog won't even listen to me. I think she's right. So, <laughs> so the point is you can't, a lot of, a lot of folks think you can teach anyone to lead, that if you just have enough education or if you just go to enough workshops, and that's, that's nonsense. That's just not true. Now, if somebody has a pulse, like we said, kind of mid-range and has a pulse, they might have potential. And some people are just naturally strong, but, but there are some people who should not be in leadership posts, and that's okay. We shouldn't demonize that. We should honor that and celebrate whatever they're good at, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. I completely uh, get that. One kind of nagging doubt slightly might be, are you being prescriptive about a leader is this, a leader has these traits? And therefore, yeah, no. I mean, leadership, yeah. as you know, is very context sensitive. So what right, might right. And what we have, so our like competency model, if you will, we have first core or universal leader traits that you want to kind of see in all leaders. You know, are you decisive? Uh, are you ethically, you know, do you abide by ethics? Do you develop talent? Are you a talent advocate? relationships, knowledge expansion. So some of those core, what you want people to do, right? right? Okay. Leaders. But then we have the strategic bucket and the operations bucket. And we measure those things too. Here's the funny thing. Leaders and people are not wired to be all of those things. Some are more strategic. Some are more operational. Some may just be really great at communications and inspiring people. They may not be either strategic or operational. But most competency models expect you to be all to all. And people are not hardwired that way. So what we're saying is, no, it's very flexible. And in fact, this is where we need a diverse pool of talent. We don't want to clone everybody that's all strategic and high risk takers. They will run the business into the ground. Of it. You know, we've got data on that. And then if they're all operational and they're too slow to move and they measure everything, well, then they're not going to be able to adapt to all the change, you know, and meet competition. So you need a blend of strategic and operational and strong leaders. Now, the interesting thing is sometimes those folks don't get along very well because they see the world in different ways and they react in different ways. But our job is to help them understand the beauty, the value of those differences and really bridge those. So they really work together in sync as this whole unit. So but no, but here's the but here's the misnomer. I think. You know, when you see all these competency models, we even worked with the Pentagon some years ago and they had 12 executive core qualifications. And we came in and said, well, nobody's going to meet all 12. You know, it was like a new language. And we worked with them to say, you're going to have some of, some of your execs and leaders will have maybe five of the competencies, partial strength in a couple and gaps on others of these competencies. But what happens in many organizations is leaders are rated or evaluated in all those 10 or 12 competencies. Well, so what we set up, and this is why I think we've had these dismal numbers, we're setting up a system of fiction. It's fiction. Nobody is good at all 10 things. I can tell you, if you put me in an accounting role, 
that's a disaster. That's true. You just don't even want me near that kind of, you know, because I'm not, I mean, I get the numbers, but I can't do the numbers, if that makes sense, on the on the detail. If, uh, I probably could if I, but it would be like, it would be very painful and it probably, probably makes a mistake. <laughs> So, so you're not necessarily being so prescriptive to say to be a to be a senior strategic successful strategic leader you must have these traits. There may be some well, commonalities. We're a little prescriptive. Yes. Okay. So okay. here. So here. So here's. First of all, I talked about leadership energy. So if you also want a leader who's who's naturally strategic thinker, potentially visionary, but at least strategic thinker, they need a pulse on what we call inquisitive. Okay. Right. Uh, okay. So they need to be able to see the big picture view. They may also be artistic and, so, and eccentric even, but you do need, but if they had, a, let's say on that zero to a hundred, if they only have five on inquisitive, they are not strategic. And I don't care how many schools, I don't care if you send them to Harvard or some of the schools, some of, some of the, our favorite schools in Madrid, <laughs> they're not going to become. Now you can help them understand to link their projects and objectives to the strategy. Certainly they can do project management potentially right but they're not going to be they're not good about peeking around the corner and thinking about things in a whole different way they don't have that abstract conceptual thinking it's not natural they're really good at practical solutions they're not as good at abstract thinking does that make sense yeah yeah it's interesting you because uh, it's i suppose a sort of prevailing wisdom if you like is anyone can be a leader although we'd all be very different leaders and we wouldn't all succeed in every context, but you're kind of challenging that. And you're saying, yeah, well, actually, no, I think, no. we're, yeah, we're, you're, we're you're not, not having any of that, are you? No, no, but we all are good at so many different things. We need to find out what that is and honor that and like celebrate it and help develop it. We shouldn't have. So, so, so often you'll see like these in R and D we've worked with these PhD scientists and they promote them to be like division ma managers just to, or whatever leaders to make more money. Stop. And then they don't do the patents anymore. They stop developing all this cool stuff. Right. And they and they're miserable. So and I have and even pharmaceutical, same thing. I have coached leaders who have like six percent leadership energy. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, go back, go <laughs> back and do your chemistries. Keep making those great, you know, pills and medications for us whatever <laughs> discover all those new uh anyway so the point being yeah i i we are definitely challenging the status quo uh now you know not everyone can lead people in functions maybe people are referring to leading themselves that's a lot different that's an individual contributor or a team member they may be a thought leader maybe they're you know but they're not necessarily going to have that leadership energy and some of those other traits that they need to be able to really effective be in a leadership role day in and day out. Does that does that make a difference? Do you understand that? So, so you know, yeah, yeah, no, I do, I do. I'm just I'm just noting that it challenges that I think quite quite positive idea that anybody could be a leader. But it's interesting that you you are challenging that and actually saying, well, no, everybody can be great, but not necessarily a great leader, you know, a great strategic leader or whatever it might be. Right. Right. You know, I'm, I'm always seeing the universities, you know, having these different courses on being a strategic thinker. And I just go, you know, what are they teaching? <laughs> <laughs> or who? And it's like, who? And I'm not, again, I think it's important to be exposed to it. I think it's, a, but I don't, but what I don't want is people developing, if they're really a strong operations leader and they're just, you know, they're finding some of this strategy stuff, like just weird and way out there. 
we don't want to humiliate those people because they don't get it. And then they pretend they get it because they don't get it, but they're not about to say it because it would be, oh, then I'm not that sharp, you know, and it's not. They're just really sharp at making things happen. You need the strategy people. You need the operations people to vet those ideas to make them work. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the strategic without the operations folks. They're the nuts and bolts, right? Do you, do you, when you're in this phase of looking at people's talents and strengths and all of that stuff, are you using any kind of well-known psychometrics that we might have heard of, like MBTI or whatever? Well, we have a CDR character assessment that we've used globally, but it's modeled after the five-factor model. So it's okay. sound, validated. So that's what we use, and it goes into great detail. And my business partner and I developed that one in 1998. So it's very well-established. We do use it for selection. I just that, had a that sounds really interesting. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. That sounds really interesting no, because a lot of the kind of the personality psychometrics are based on Jung or, you know, like MBTI or Insights or sort of more Freudian approach like STI and stuff. And they, they have their uses, absolutely. Correct, correct. They do. Five factor is the one that seems to be more respected by psychologists and that profession. Exactly. But because it doesn't produce a single fancy type that you can then stick a badge on yourself and say, this is me. It, yeah, it's sort yeah, of you don't it's less easy to grasp yeah it's less easy to grasp then you don't get a color or anything like that so i'm very interested to hear a, a bit more about that but let's not do that now because we'll go off on a massive yeah. tangent um okay. uh, dammy warned me about tangents so Good. <laughs> i'm not Good. going to go off on this tangent so um but send me that later because i'd be really interested or if you okay. can send me some information about it because i'd be really really interested to understand a bit more about that if you'd like we have a new tool that's actually online feedback on it you could actually take it and try our new avatar coaching get your own coaching see what you think about that oh is that the oh you you mentioned this previously so that's about um using a, an ai interface yes, for coaching a, right okay and that for not your senior level executives that we typically coach but for the you know bottom 75 percent middle level leaders managers and down you know professionals right. engineers it people but if you it'd be a great way for you kind of get a first-hand look at what we measure because it's measuring you and giving you feedback. But it sounds like you really put a huge amount of effort into this diagnosis phase, into this it, it, the diagnosis. I don't know if that's the right word, but into this self-awareness phase. Oh, it's so important. And, and I will tell you this. Everyone we coach really embraces and loves the feedback. It's about them. It's, it's a picture of them. So they really love it. So you don't get like pushback. You don't get... And they own it, even if they know they're struggling in a certain role. They're like, yeah, no wonder I'm, you know. So it's not like, now, they, when we get to the risks, obviously, sometimes that's like, a, our language is kind of very stark, very direct, but they get it. They, and it, it's very helpful to them. And we don't do it to be offensive. We do it so that they get this realization that these things can hurt you if you don't understand and manage them better, that they're happening. So that kind of thing. But the but they, even the character, no matter where it is, people love their own data. So that's why I love yeah. this work. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, it sounds, I mean, like I'm just sort of thinking about how to apply it in my own work. I do a lot of leadership development stuff and coaching and things like that. It feels like I need to do more in the self-awareness phase. And perhaps right. I'm not right. doing enough in that. So that's really useful. Yeah, what we do too for leadership development, for example, we do coaching, a debrief of everyone's assessments of all the leaders if we're doing a workshop. Then we use the data to customize the workshops that they go through. So it's all about them first person. So it's really powerful. So right, that's so really not interesting. Only use it for coaching, but you can use it for training, you can use it for team development. And this way, we're not just talking theory or talking about, you know, oh, we all need to live up to this. We know what they actually look like. We know their strengths, we know their 
gaps, their vulnerabilities. So it's very powerful. That way it really moves them forward. The second big area we were going to talk about was around risks. And right. these three main areas of risks you were telling me about, what, what, what are these three main areas of risks and how do they break out? What they, what yeah. might, how might you see those in leaders? Well, they are personality-based, just like our strengths are, you know, under the five-factor model. The risks are also personality-based. And the three areas you could break them into comes from Karen Horney's work in the 1950s, late 1950s, early 60s. And she developed what was called three coping strategies under conflict or stress. And there's three ways people react, you know, and they're natural reactions we don't even think about because they're personality-based, right? You either avoid conflict, right? You move away or avoid it, or you use aggression and fight back, or you seek affection and try to make things better, you know, try smooth things over. So we measure 11 risks, but they, but they cluster into those three coping strategies. So there's 11 individual risks. Some of them are aggressive, some of them are retreating, and some of them are you know, seeking affection. So that's the way to look at it, though. It's a little easier to understand that, oh, when my boss gets, gets agitated, I avoid him. I, I shut down. I don't say it. a lot of people will shut down, right? Or maybe if a, if a direct report is, is uh, causing a problem, maybe somebody uses aggression. And, and these are, here's the key, though. These are ineffective coping strategies ineffective behaviors, bad behaviors. So when you look at, if we go back to the beginning of our discussion, when we said, when I was saying how many leaders are ineffective, there's really just two key reasons for that. First, a lot of people aren't necessarily in the best job for themselves. You know, maybe they're strategic and they're in an operational role or what have you. But the second and bigger reason I think is because risks are running amok. Risks are just, they're having a field day. They're happening all the time because people are not aware of what their risks are. So again, I go back to self-awareness. If I know which of the 11 risks I have, and then I've analyzed them enough, we have like sheets to help coaches help uh, people analyze what, how they show up, what's the trigger, you know, what was the impact, what's the consequence, and what can I do differently and practice that. Then we can help people minimize the risks, but be aware of them. Because until you're aware, and the other thing that customers tell us, the best thing about the risks is they now have a vocabulary. They have a way of thinking about it in advance. You know what I'm saying? So if you are detached and you and meetings just generally kind of check out and go quiet, now that we've called your attention to it and, and what harmful impact that's had to you and the team, we're going to help you work through that so you don't detach like you did in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And we met, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So So it's really powerful. And people, believe it or not, people love it because they know it's true. We help them, as, and the coach's role in leadership development or coaching, we help them understand and give them examples of when those risks are in play. So when we, when we train coaches and certify coaches, we help them with what we call purposeful questions to get at those risks before they even open the assessment. So as you're having your opening dialogue with your client, you're getting examples of these different behaviors that tie right to the data. So then you can say, oh, let me tell you, this is an example you gave me when you were talking to me of you being a false advocate as one of our 11. And that's kind of covert disagreement, passive aggressive type behaviors where people, they shake their heads yes, but inside their head, they're thinking, no way, I think this is a horrible idea, but they won't express it. <laughs> so, 
so we can play back for them then once we've asked all these questions i already have examples so they can't they can't push back they'll go yeah i do that yes i do i don't speak up when i should because i'm trying to be polite or and you know there's a myriad of reasons these people justify in their heads but the point being it's ineffective. I had a whole team of financial people, a financial company, consulting company. They were all false advocates. So what that meant was nobody was being upfront with each other. They all just talked superficially. So we really worked with that team on how to really put forth what you're really thinking. So we actually had to facilitate sessions on how they could learn to be more open with each other because naturally they weren't. Can you give us an example in each of the three main areas there that you talked about, the kind of stepping back avoiding yeah. stepping forward into the more aggressive space and then the people pleasy or look seeking affection i yeah, think yeah, you yeah. said I, i'm using it sounds a lot like the conflict sequence in sdi i don't know if you know sdi um model that's why I, i'm perhaps using that language but can you give us an example of each of uh, sure. one risk in each area perhaps yeah okay so uh, moving against is easy we all recognize that that's what we see more frequently in leadership so one that is glaring that everybody knows about is the egotist so we measure people who have those egotist, narcissistic tendencies, who are pushy, you know, they think they're smarter, brighter than everybody, and they're stubborn, and they're uh, sometimes tough to deal with. They can be, they treat often, they pe treat people below them very, very uh, harshly. People above them, oh, they treat them great because it's all about them and they want their careers to go, go well. Uh, but here's the, here's the rub. 70%, you ready? 70% of leaders have a risk or elevation in egotist. So it's part of the turf. Everybody's, you know, being rah, rah, rah. And now depending on the, on the other risks and depending on the rest of the profile, there are these abrasive leaders who are egotists. You know, we can think of a lot of politicians. I won't name names, but most, I would say most politicians are egotists to some degree. Sure. Yeah. But they might have some mitigating other traits that either help them or hurt them, Right. So just know, and we've done a lot of you research. You probably have to be to an extent, I would have guessed. Yeah, I mean, so here's the issue. Just to give you a gender differences, we did a study, and I've written two books, on the gender differences and risks. What we found was men in this study of all the leaders across all these countries, and we also measured, you know, Western Europe. But in the, in the first study, men were egotists, rule breakers, and upstagers. So that's three moving against. And that's loud, pushy, I'm doing it my way, and I'll break the rules. I, I'll say I can do it even if I can't. That's that aggressive type thing. So they're getting promoted, the guys, right? Meanwhile, the majority of women are worriers. And in Western Europe, they're even higher worriers than we are here in North America. And worriers, that's a moving, that's a, a, an avoiding, avoiding conflict, right? A worrier has a fear of failure, fear of making a mistake. So they overanalyze. So rather than speaking up when everybody's getting aggressive at a meeting, these women are going inside of their heads and analyzing, am I 100% right? And all this stuff, right? So they, they fail to speak up and they lose visibility. They don't seem courageous. So they're not looked on for higher levels in leadership. So they end up holding themselves back, even though maybe on their, on their character profile, you know, on their strength, they may be an outstanding leader. But because we haven't helped them understand their risks and manage their risks, they get, over, they get bypassed. We see that as the key reason for the glass ceiling because most of the risks are different. And, and answer me this, how many, how often is there pressure or stress in organizations? Often. <laughs> yeah, most yeah. of the time. So, yeah. so those risk behaviors are showing under stress and conflict. But, oh, and one other thing we did, we looked at the women who had made it. We looked at CEO women and we looked at corporate executive women. 
the CEO women's risks, the few of those women were identical to the men. They were egotists, upstaters, and rule breakers. So they were just going in and doing whatever, same way. And the corporate executive women were upstagers. So even though they had some worrying, as upstagers, they could speak up. They didn't shut down. Upstagers are people who you know, push their point of view hard. They talk a lot. They talk over people, salespeople, you know, right. and so forth. So, so that helped those women, believe it or not, those risks helped those women stay in the game where the women that just are warriors without having some aggressive risks kind of fold their tent, you know, <laughs> and they're like, they're not visible. They become invisible to other people or don't, you know, the, the decision makers don't see all the strength that they bring, if that makes sense. They may be far better than some of those egotists, but they don't get seen for it because they're not loud and noisy. So this risks piece is really about the most likely ineffective behaviors that I'm going to fall back on when I'm in a kind of a stressful situation. Yes. And you can have different ones, yes, but it's when your buttons get pushed or you're stressed, this is how you react in these situations. Then the last one, the moving towards seeking affection, we measure what we call pleasers, people who want to always say yes to the boss, yes people. Yes, you know, even if they know it's wrong, they're going to say yes. And then also perfectionists, people who always try to try to do everything perfectly. They're they're what we call the seeking affection people. So or or type risks. So you have that block of against fighters, and then you have the type of I'm going to run away and I'm going to go inside my head or avoid you, you know, and uh, that's worrying, detached, hyper moody. What's hyper moody? Emotional ups and downs, explosiveness, um, emotional volatility to moodiness, broodiness. So when you get so in other words, if somebody's pushing your buttons, then maybe you get yourself too excited or animated or angry. It's an emotional up and down or change that impact. And then usually other risks go around that. So if you're hyper moody and an upstage or egotist, you're likely to pop off and yell or get inappropriate with people, right? But if you're an upstager who is detached, then it's all going to be inward, right? You're going to be suffering inward and agitated inward. You're not going to let other people know. So it does, they are dependent on one another on how they show up. Right. Okay. So if you're really a, you know, introvert, you internalize, but it's still negatively. But if you're really in this emotional state, it's still going to impact how you're performing and interacting with others. Right. So, for example, in the um, we know in manufacturing and in like even in uh, refining, for example, in the energy industry, a lot of leaders mostly come up from engineering. They're engineers or finance, but mostly engineering. Their key risks that we know we can look at groups and tell you what what's your key risks they're detached. So here we are. I, I, that worries me in a sense or concerns me because so if there's a lot of problems or something's not going well, then if people clam up and don't communicate, that's not a good thing. That's when you need to communicate more, right? So that's why that self-awareness. But if we think we may have pressure in tank B, we need to be talking about it immediately and not, you know, not, not biting our tongue. Does that that makes sense. Oh, one other one. You're going to love this. So you also don't want pleasers working for egotists, right? Because then you right. get that narcissist sycophant, you know, and, and believe it or not, I have seen a number of egotist leaders hire all pleasers. That is just, you know, that's sounds horrible. very unhealthy, very unhealthy environment by the sound of it. Right, right. So is that your dog? I think. I've, yeah, he's supposed to be outside. So I've got somebody to take care of him, but uh, obviously he escaped. 
so the third thing is around drivers and motivation and how we discover that in in a way that's meaningful for us and how that feeds into all of this self-awareness piece so what's all that about or, or how do you work with that i suppose yeah, so that's different than the first two. First two, we're really looking at innate personality characteristics. But the third one, the drivers and rewards needs are mo intrinsic motivators. So what makes you happy, excited? What gets you going? What energizes you? What makes you feel good and fulfilled? Versus those things you don't like that you might find tedious, boring, or even aversions, very distasteful. So the key is... So it's really important. And this one is the retention tool. So once you get an employer leader in, you wanna make sure they're working in ways that tap into or honor their drivers. The more you honor and reward people around their own needs and drivers, the happier they're gonna be, right? And if their work is somewhat tied to it, and actually if we're working with younger people in their careers or whatever, the, the key is align your strengths, which is your character, personality character traits, and your drivers, they're the most Two most important, you need to be doing what you're really good at and what you love to do. And then you won't work a day in your life, right? Then you're happy. That's what we want people to align with. But so no, so the drivers are terrific. So we measure 10 of these. And these are things like amusement and hedonism, artistic endeavors, business and finance, humanitarian efforts, uh, companionship and affiliation, moral platform, safety and security. So in those, and there's no, this is not a judgment zone. There's nothing good or bad about any of these. It's just what's important to you. So we want to honor and value that. And hopefully you get some of that in your work. You can also get some of it in your home time if you can't get it all at work. So let's say you're high artistic. Well, maybe you get to do some PowerPoints or do some writing. But at home, maybe you play instruments or maybe you paint or what have you, do gardening. So that helps you with your, your, your need for artistic. And here's the thing. I just finished an article that we actually just put up yesterday, and it's how to reduce stress and be happy. Honor your drivers and rewards. Because when you're doing things you really are passionate about and feel good about, you cannot be stressed at the same time. Life doesn't work that way. If I'm really in my element and having fun, I can't be negatively stressed at the same time. Does that make sense? There's no room for me to be brooding and unhappy or you know, feeling tense if I'm painting, if it's something I love, right? Or if I'm, another one's like scientific reasoning, if I'm doing something sciencey, you know, if I'm doing some research that's cool, right? Now that may be nerdy to some people, but other people love the research, so. Well, yeah, sure. It's about finding each individual's, as you said, intrinsic motivators. Right. So so that is, again, something that you measure and you've got these, did you say 10? 10 areas? Did I, am I making There's that up? 10 facets, then they have sub-facets right. if, it, if it's a primary driver for you, yeah. Okay. And then that helps you again with your self-awareness. Am I in the right field? Am I got a job that's got enough of that content or something like that? Is that right? Right. Right. So one quick example, I had a guy I was coaching and he was in banking and sales. He was miserable, right? And it turned out he had 95 in amusement and hedonism. The average the industry average in banking is like 5%. He was a cultural misfit because they're all buttoned down, no laughter, no banter, nothing. You're not allowed to be humorous. He was like, he was unhappy. He ended up leaving and now he sells for like the cooking, the chef industry, you know, to chefs and things like that, to restaurants, much better for him, much better fit where people are friendly and fun and that kind of entertaining. So he was just, you know, with that highest score, it wasn't working for him. He was kind of miserable. So that's how strong these can be. Yeah, wait, I mean, of course it makes sense. I'm sure everybody listening would recognize whether or not, as you said, if you feel like a cultural misfit, 
but giving it some structure like that i think really helps people grasp it and rather than it just feeling I've, i feel out of place here my work colleagues feel a bit boring or yep uh, you're actually giving it a, giving it a name and a vocabulary and and sometimes people are unhappy or a little depressed and they don't know why like one of the others we measure i didn't mention is fame and feedback so how much visibility fame do you want to be famous or do you like or do you just want respect in your industry so we have five different facets of it but that's interesting too because i would say most people have an average or a high score but you have some people with really low scores so if you give them public praise you humiliate them they are mortified so these also have the opposite effect so what we want managers and leaders to do is find out what drives their people and reward those things that matter to them not that matter to me like if i like this that doesn't mean that my direct reports like the same thing they may like something totally different you know uh we have written in our little uh, our policy at our small uh company too that you can take two days off to indulge your drivers wow that sounds fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> That sounds fun. Drive, we call them driver days, right? Driver days. So if, if I'm being coached by you, uh, I'm a learner, this, 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 what, what am I going to do with all of this? I've, I've, I've heard yes. about my strengths, gifts, etc. I've got all of that. I understand my risks now. And now I know about my drivers. What am I going to do with it all? Well, your role as a coach or what we do in like developmental action planning is help people theme what's, what's the key takeaways at, in the moment. You know, what are the key takeaways? My strengths are this. I'm really good at this. Oh, and I discovered maybe I have these other things I'm not really utilizing. Really acknowledging, here's some of my gaps. And the other thing with, as you know, with gaps, is it important to my job? Hopefully they're not. But if they are, how are you going to fix that? What are you going to do about that? So we help them then build plans around those themes, themes on risks. We're going to help them focus on what are your few highest risks that get in your way the most. And we're going to help them build behaviors and tactics to prevent those risks from hurting them or their effectiveness with others, right? So that takes time. And then thirdly, we want to make sure that you're finding ways to honor your drivers. Are you doing things you love? And if not, like I'll have people who have high amusement hedonism, but they're working like 60, 70 hours a week. And, and I'll say to them when we leave, your major number one assignment is to go have fun. No more of this all work, no play. So it might be, so as a coach, we help them boil it down to what are the key takeaways. But the very interesting thing is, but this, and then we have a one-page uh, summary sheet. Oh, you can't see, but it's one. But what we do is, this doesn't change over your lifetime. So as you're thinking about a new job or you're this or that career changes, you can look at this and it can help you with guidance or with our new CDRU coach online tool. You can go back and listen and get guidance there. But I had a woman we just um, who came back to us. I coached her in 2004. And now she's back with us because she loved it. She's used it as a guide her whole career, you know, and she's like an HR director at a credit union. So it just works. It stays with you. So it's not, it's like the here and now, what are the key things? And if somebody, for example, you might, you might coach someone who's not in the right job or the right organization. I think it's fair and right. The person is our client. We have to help them start to explore. Well, what's next? You're here now, but what, what can you do? Can you maybe renegotiate a little different job or do you want to start thinking of something else forward? So I think, I mean, the other thing we are, I would say not only are, is our, our results very direct, but we're honest with people. We don't blow smoke. We try to help them from where they're coming from, from where they shine and not try to push them to be something that they really, that's not going to be work for them. So our clients always come first, you know, these leaders and the individuals. 
And uh, and we have I've been called into on interventions when somebody's not a fit or things aren't going well every time in all these years is because the person never fit the job in the first place. So trying to think through they're valuable because maybe they know the business, the technology. What's another job we could maybe make for them if you really want to keep them? So. So one last question. If I'm running a leadership development program, which I am fairly soon, actually, um, what what sort of key advice should I take away from this? You know, I would say think about using tools like ours, something deep and rich like that. Help people be self-aware and then push them through that. Use their self-awareness in your design of those programs that you're doing. So quick example, if you have people that are high interpersonal sensitivity and low, I separate them and make them work through things and then work together because they have a very different. Some are really kind and helpful. Others are indifferent, cold, aloof and possibly tough. So I help them learn how to bridge and talk together. So you can use what I'm saying is use good data. Those Myers-Briggs and DISCs and all those other things, they're they're kind of styles things, you know, but they're not heavy duty like this to help people be self-aware. They're a nice start. I'm not saying that they're terrible or anything. They're not. They're good at a general sense. And if that's all you can use, then go with that. But I honestly think the deeper you can do the self-awareness, the better. The studies show people just are not self-aware. You know, there was a Harvard Business Review study that said everybody in the study, this 5,000 people, everybody thought they were self-aware. And it turned out only 10 to 15% actually are. So it's hard. I mean, it's not intuitive. So I think these measures help. And we just love it. We, I mean, it's people just say, I feel like you unzipped me and looked into my soul. How did you know this about me? You know, so it's really in a positive way. It's really nice. It's refreshing. People love it. It's kind of a timeout, like a spa for you, right? To really become acquainted with with all the gifts and wonderful things about yourself and pitfalls that can get in your way too. Okay, so it's around digging deep with this self-awareness, using the best tools you can, and then using that to actually inform the way you structure the rest of the program as well. So it's not just an isolated thing, and now let's go back to generic whatever. It's actually using that so it informs the program. Yeah, okay. And then we build action plans around those things too. We tie it to what they learn and then to the context of their job or their career as well. So if people want to know more about this, Nancy, how can they get in touch with you? Well, they can uh, obviously reach out to me on LinkedIn or our website is one of our, it's cdrcompanies.com. You didn't sound sure there. Well, because that's a newer one. We have actually three websites, but that's like bridges you to all of them. Okay. CDRcompanies.com. So that'll bring you to our CDRU, which is that avatar coaching system or our assessment leadership development side is CDR assessment group. And that CDR assessment group is the one we've had since 1998. So Okay. And I'll put the links in the in the description on on the on the website for the for the podcast as well. So if anybody does want to research into any of this a bit more and look into these tools that you're talking about, then they can do that. Right. And we have a we actually have a coaches virtual certification starting on June 10th. And I have already one person in Madrid enrolled. So y'all welcome to to join us. Wow. Okay. Good old Madrid. Yeah, it's uh, our, our certification now that we're not in person is just 90 minutes, uh, one day a week for six weeks, and then there's homework. So we st- And then there's coaching ahead of time. You get your own personal coaching feedback session with the tools before you go through the virtual you know, training. Great. Well, thank you very much, Nancy. I mean, it's been really, really interesting talking to you, and I could tell that we could talk for a lot longer because there's so yeah. many interesting uh, threads we could have tugged at here, but um, we skated over stuff quite a lot. But it is really, really interesting. So okay. thanks a lot for your time and your sharing your knowledge and experience. 
Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.